0: You have a uh, bulletin with you this morning. It says on the front, Philippians. Pastor Jason is just returning from vacation now. He will probably pick up that message series on Philippians, I think, next week. But it didn't make sense to have him try to plan a sermon while he and his family were having some much-needed time away. So you've got me today, and I'm not preaching on Philippians. But if you think that means, hey, while the pastor's away, the mice will play, <laughs> you're wrong. <laughs> um, because if you were thinking, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to take the message today to uh, uh, kind of zone out a little bit, maybe check Facebook, you know, catch a quick nap. Uh, no, uh, today is an uh, audience participation sermon. I'm going to ask things of you throughout the course of our time together. And it's actually going to be a little bit of a choose-your-own-adventure sermon. Some of you are laughing because you may remember the choose-your-own-adventure books. They were these books that were like super popular when I was in uh, elementary school. Uh, You'd read like the first couple chapters to get a sense of where the story was going, and then they would present you with a question, and you'd have to answer the question. And depending on how you answered, it would tell you, well, flip now, if this is your answer, to this page. And you'd go somewhere else in the book, and how you made decisions would choose how the story played out and how it ended. Believe it or not, we're going to have a choose-your-own-adventure sermon today. In a little bit, I'm going to ask you some questions. And depending on how you answer is going to determine where we go today. I'm going to ask you specifically in terms of audience participation to do two things, at least at the beginning. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a scenario for you, like those first couple of chapters in a choose-your-own-adventure book. I'm going to ask you to personalize it. I'm going to ask you to think of a very real person in your life. And I'm warning you right now, this story begins at a dark place. But to get the full meaning out of it, To get the hope that comes dawning out of the dark. I want you to go there with me and pick a real person. After this scenario, then I'm going to ask you a question. And yes, I want you to answer me verbally aloud. And I will be writing down the answers. They won't be published anywhere. But I'm going to be writing down the answers because I'll need to come back to them later. There's just a few people who are not allowed to answer me this morning. If you were at Message Club on Thursday morning, you know where uh, this sermon is going. You're not allowed to answer. And my darling wife, Debbie, you are not allowed to answer. You know too much about the sermon. Pot kettle, yeah, that's good, that's good. That's good. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I'm preaching, I can't even do anything to you, Joel. <laughs> I, might, I might mention you later. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you for the moment of levity, really, I appreciate it, I do. Um, I'm going to ask you now to uh, picture a scenario, and I want you to imagine a very real person and a person that you love and care about. If you are a parent here today, particularly if you're a parent who's raised a teenage child, I can tell you right away that's the person you're going to want to pick. If you're a grandparent uh, and and, and you've got teenage grandchildren or you just want to harken back to remember raising your own children, that's the person you're going to want to pick. If you're not a parent, I want you to think about someone that you care for and in particular someone who the circumstances of their life will determine and impact your life. Not someone you can casually dismiss or just cut off. So maybe we're talking a younger sibling. Or maybe we're talking, uh, if you're newly married, that, that new spouse. Or maybe we're talking, um, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, or e- even just a really good close friend. Someone who your life is tied to. And in the course of setting up this scenario, I'm going to use the, the son coming to the father because I can relate to that. But you're gonna, you, I want you to translate. If it's a daughter for you, if it's a grandchild, if it's, if it's a best friend, if it's a younger sibling, you just translate to your own situation. Here's the situation. It's relatively late in the evening. You've turned off the television or the tablet or whatever it is. Maybe you've crawled into bed and maybe you're sitting in a favorite chair there's a lamp on, maybe you're checking Facebook, maybe you're reading a good book maybe you're just getting ready to go to bed and this person comes to you and the person says, can we talk? and you say, yeah but there's a certain trepidation because the way they asked you know something's coming and this person says to you Again, I'm going to use the dad analogy. Dad, I'm a drug addict. And you didn't know that. They'd hidden it. They come to you and they're asking for help. What they don't know is that just them sharing this has kind of rocked your world. And somewhere deep down inside, you want help. Every bit as much as they want help. Or maybe, maybe the story isn't drug addict. Maybe, maybe it's a teenage daughter comes and says, Mom or Dad, I'm pregnant. Or maybe it is the teenage son, Mom, Dad, my girlfriend's pregnant. And you know right then your life is different. Or maybe they come and say, Mom, Dad, I have a confession to make. I'm gay. Or maybe it's some event that's happened. Dad, I was driving home from work and I hit somebody with my car. And I was so scared, I just drove away. If you know the law, you know that's hit and run. What does that feel like? And I was trying to imagine it, my own scenario, it was like, feels like John Davis walking up to me, putting everything he has into it and just punching me right in the gut. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, the breath knocked out of you, doubled over, can't look up to save yourself. Those of you who know me, know my family, and know our story, know that this isn't a hypothetical for me. There was a night, probably about a little over five years ago now, where I confronted my son, 18 year old son, and he confessed to me felony sexual abuse of a minor. And the victims were my own daughters. In that moment, and in the months and years following, but especially in just a few days following, there was a sense, a very real sense, that I had. Nothing in me that could answer the questions I had, the hurts I felt. I had to turn somewhere. For all my oldest child American self-sufficiency, that was all out the window. I needed something or someone to get me through. Somewhere to turn. Now, I've asked you to imagine yourself in a similar situation. And I told you I would ask you for feedback. Now I'm asking. In a moment like that, in the days like that, who or what would you turn to? Go ahead and answer aloud, somebody. Prayer, what kind of prayer? Help, yeah, God, help, absolutely. Other answers? Parents, yeah, whatever your support system is, right? But back to my own parents, you bet. Or your own parents? Mm -hmm. Spouse? Yeah, yeah, I know, this is a church and we sometimes like to put a churchy face on things not to discount from the prayer answer it was a good answer but yeah in this world across all demographics churchgoers not churchgoers believers not believers there's lots of places you might turn think outside the box a little bit yeah drugs alcohol other answers friends Okay, inward, anger or withdrawal or t- depression just shut down, you bet. Church family, yeah. Yeah, yeah, resources, people have been there before, you bet. Pastor, yep, and other believers. Mm-hmm. Let's, go, let's go, we've given a lot of very good answers so far that that uh, maybe the right answers, we think. But let, let's go to a person now. Let's think about a person who doesn't know the comfort of having a church family or faith or prayer or a pastor. What's that? Attorney, Attorney. thank you. Yeah, sure, you start thinking about the logical consequences of things and protecting yourself. An attorney makes sense. Good answer. Other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Saying I've reached the end of it and I can't. Good. Sure. Just anybody to affirm you in that moment, right? Yeah, the answers you're looking for. Okay. All right, and there are other answers, I'm sure. I'm going to stop there because I'm running out of room to write. I'm going to stop there. We are today going to look at a passage of Scripture from a person that happens to be uh, the biblical hero, King David, someone who suffered and where he turned. In Psalm 27, If you have a Bible, I do encourage you to open it up. I will read the whole thing, but I encourage you to open it up if you have one. Psalm 27. The book of Psalms is a book of songs written by a number of different authors, but the most prolific one was this little shepherd boy who out in the hills while he was watching the sheep had a gift for song. Scripture later tells us he had a heart after God's own heart, and he wrote songs. And it's just magnificent that it's in Scripture because Scripture tells us stories and prophecies and law, and yet here's this this shepherd boy who tells us of his heart and the struggles of his heart and the struggles to live out faith in God when he faced betrayal, when he faced loneliness, when he faced uh, opponents and opposing armies. This boy became a king, and all of the politics of it. And when his family fell apart, and we get glimpses of his heart through the whole thing, his own failures. Psalm 51 happens to be one of my favorites, and it's the psalm that comes right after his perhaps greatest failure of his life. But we're looking at Psalm 27 today. We're going to look at the whole thing. I'm going to begin reading. I'm going to start with these first six verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they... Will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle. And set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Now, these first six verses seem a little bit of a contrast to what we've been talking about this morning. I started us in such a dark and painful place. And here he is talking about songs of joy. But if you read those first six verses, you're going to notice something if you're a student of English grammar. You're going to notice there's a lot of future tense in here. He's saying, I will. I will. God will. He's looking to the future. In a way, he's basically giving us sort of a, a credo of his faith. He's affirming, this is what I believe. I believe that when, an interesting note, it doesn't say if, this is when. When my enemies come after me, devour my flesh, turn against me, an army besiege me, when this happens, I will. When this happens, God will. He is building on the foundation, laying out a foundation of faith. These are the things that that unless you're going through something really brutal, like I was talking about a few minutes ago, right now, these are the things that you would probably all affirm right now. Yes, I will. God will. But then comes the next few verses as we discover that this isn't all just future hypothetical tense for David. Verse 7. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. He did not say there might be a day when false witnesses will rise up against me. He says they rise now. There's a couple of will words in there. I will seek his face. But the primary context or or tense of that entire passage is present tense. He doesn't say, my God, will you answer me? He says, answer me. I know five years ago when I tried turning to prayer after that difficult evening, I know that one of the prayers I was praying was, answer me. And it wasn't, oh, please would you, oh, great, wonderful, awesome God. Just like this passage, it was a demand prayer. Answer me. This is present tense. I want to make a point of Psalm 10 as well, or excuse me, uh, verse 10. Verse 10. It says, Though my father and mother forsake me. We don't really have record of his father, Jesse, and his mother ever forsaking him per se. Um, But let's remember that this is a song. And in songs, we do often use sort of analogies and parables as a way of explaining the depth of of, of some painful emotion. And so he makes reference to a father and a mother forsaking their own child. And when you think about that in this world, yes, I know there are broken families where the relationship with the mother and the father is not right. And that's all the more painful because we know that's not how it's supposed to be. It is supposed to be that when a son or daughter goes out in the world and the co-workers turn against them and the friends turn against them and the lenders and the the creditors are coming and everybody is against them, they're supposed to be able to come back to mom and dad. Because of all the people in the world, your mom and dad are the last people who are supposed to forsake you. If it's not that way in your experience, I understand. That's brokenness. We have this phrase, a face only a mother could love. (laughs) It's because the last person who's supposed to turn their back on you is your mom. So as David is talking here about the feeling of abandonment, everybody's left me. Though my father and my mother even. The point is he's got No one to turn to. We made a list. You know how long the list was of people? Parents, spouse, friends, church, family, pastor, attorney, and people giving me the answers I want. That's like 80% of our list was people. David says, I got nobody. I'm going to focus on another verse, but first let's finish the psalm. Two more verses this. Verse 13. I am still confident of this. I am present tense. I am still, because I just went through verses 7 through 12, or maybe I'm in them right now, he says. I'm still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. End of Psalm. He's not through his time yet. His struggle, his loneliness, it's not over yet. When I read Psalm 27 in its full context, beginning to end, here's what I see. I see a man who takes six verses to lay out the foundation of his faith. Then he talks about, I'm in a crisis of my faith, and now I need to remember the foundation of my faith to get me through the crisis of my faith. That's Psalm 27. And when he says, wait for the Lord, he is not really talking to you. He's talking to himself. He's reminding himself. All those, all those things I said in the first six verses of this song, they're all still true. I just got to wait for them to come true. And we could talk a lot about this passage. There's a lot to be preached on in theory, but today we are going to zoom in on just one verse. Verse 8. It's right in the middle. That part where he's in the thick of it, when he's admitting, I am in the valley now. Verse 8, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Now, some of your translations say, God said to me, seek my face. And some of your translations say, my heart said, seek his face. Either way. Whether it is God saying, come to me, or something welling up deep inside saying, go to him, either way, whatever the motivation is, if it's something internal, if it's something external, or if it's that awesome way in which our sovereign God works through the internal to do his will, whatever. The point is, this is what he says in that moment of deepest darkness. Seek or turn to. God's face. Your face, God, I will seek. Now, I asked you at the beginning to tell me all the places you would turn to. Tell me all the places a person would turn to, churched, not churched, and we listed a bunch of stuff. Prayer, Friends, spouse, church family, pastor, drugs and alcohol, etc. And some of those places are good places. Crying out to God, help is a good thing to do. Turning to a pastor or friends or your church family or your support network, whether it's your parents or friends, whatever, good things to do. We might have said, I turn to the word and I look for answers. Good thing to do. But we didn't say, I'm going to seek God's face. I gave a whole congregation of people, most of whom are church people, a couple of minutes to list everywhere you would turn, and nobody said they would turn to God's face. Maybe that's just because we're not familiar with that language. We don't use that language a lot. Except we did, even in some of the songs that we sang. What does it mean to look into God's face? If that's where David turns when everyone has abandoned him, When he is utterly alone and he has nowhere else to turn, he is at the end of his rope and he looks to God's face. What does that mean? All right, audience participation time. I'm going to ask you all for just a few moments to close your eyes. Go ahead, do it now. Close your eyes and kind of look down a little bit like we're going to pray. And picture this. You've been looking down at life, at the circumstances, maybe that situation I explained earlier, maybe it's something else, at the pain, at the hurt, at this messed up, painful world. Now with your eyes closed, I want you to picture, I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine looking into the face and eyes of God. Try to do it. Right now, with eyes closed, using a little imagination, a little bit of a prayer exercise here, look into right now into the face, into the eyes of God. Okay, let's stop. You can open your eyes told you this was a choose-your-own-adventure sermon. I looked out across this entire audience. I didn't expect this. I looked out and across this entire congregation, and I saw no one lift their chin. No one. As though they were looking down at life, and then they looked up to embrace the face and eyes of God. Now, maybe I missed somebody. <laughs> if I did, sorry. But... It leads me to believe there is something about our broken, sinful world and our own hearts and the things that get in the way between us and God that make us, and I bet you many of you can relate to this, that make us a little hesitant to think about this idea of seeking out God's actual face, looking into God's actual eyes. That for many of us here this morning, there's something about that that makes us just a little bit trepidatious, even a little bit scared. Why do I say that? Well, a couple of things come to mind right away. You might relate to this. Maybe you're nervous. Maybe you're just a little bit scared about looking into the face of God because you're not absolutely sure that you're going to find him there. That if you closed your eyes and actually looked into the face of God, that you would see anything at all. If that resonates with you at all, if you wonder, if I sought God, would I find him? Would he be there for me? I want to reassure you. There's a passage of scripture in Jeremiah chapter 29. If you've been in the Christian community, in the Protestant community for a long time, you already know this verse because it's probably hanging up on the wall of either your home or your grandma's home. Interestingly enough, Jeremiah 29 comes at a time when Israel had done wrong. When God had literally sent oppressors to capture Israel. Israel had been taken captive. We are not talking about people who were like on God's good side right now. The people were taken captive and God says to Israel, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. See, we love to quote that verse uh, in the in, in Christian community because we, th- we think about that that sounds really nice. God has good stuff for me. We don't realize the context it comes in. It comes in a time when the people were, God was not happy with the people. And yet he still said I have plans for you, plans for your hope, uh, your future, and a hope. And we don't keep reading. Do you guys not know how awesome the next couple of verses are? Here we go, next verse. Verse 12. After this plans for you, prosper you, give you hope and a future, then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Verse 13 now, you will seek me, and you will find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. So if you are fearful at all that when you close your eyes and call out and seek and desire and yearn for the face of God, if you are concerned at all that you will not find him, I can only assure you with the promises of our faithful and everlasting God, when you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And it doesn't matter if you're in God's good graces or not at the moment. When you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And then the verse continues and says, and will bring you back from captivity. It's possible also that when you, when we imagine looking into the face of God, it's not so much that we're nervous he won't be there, it's, we're a little bit nervous about what we'll find or what we'll see if we do look there. I think for a lot of people who've been a part of a Christian church for a long time, that, that may be a real issue because we're very conscious of what sin is and we know we've done it. And we're very conscious of how often we have fallen short of the glory of God and we know that God is a righteous judge. And what will I actually see if I look at God? They say the eyes are the window to the soul. And if the theologians will forgive me for suggesting God has a soul, the idea is if I look into the eyes of God, I will see what He Sees in me. And what will that be? What will? Some of you maybe never before this morning took that exercise of closing your eyes and trying to look into the eyes of God. Some of you this morning maybe were so afraid of that reality you still haven't done it yet. And I'm going to challenge you, when we're done here today, when you're in your prayer closet, when you're, okay, not when you're driving, but when, when, when you're out and about in the world, close your eyes and look into the eyes of God. But what will you see there? Again, I can only assure you, with what the Scriptures say, what God said you would find there. There's several different passages. Like the Bible so often is, you get a little piece here, then there's lots of words here, then there's a little piece. Sometimes reading the Bible can be like Shakespeare, I admit. So I'm going to abbreviate each one of these passages a little bit, take out some of the middle stuff just so that it's all together in one soundbite. But I assure you that if you look up these passages, you'll understand it is true to the heart of that passage. What will you see when you look at the eyes of God? Psalm 33, the eyes of the Lord are on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them and keep them. Psalm 138, I will praise your name for your love and your faithfulness. Though the Lord is on high, he looks down on the lowly. And though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. Your, your love endures forever. Or Lamentations 3 My eyes wept unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. You came near when I called you and you said, do not fear. Just a few of the passages that talk about what is in God's eyes. He comes near. Do not fear. Love. To deliver and to keep. But until you look into His eyes. And I don't mean it as just some exercise in a sermon we did once. Because there are several passages that talk about seeking the face of God. You get out of thesaurus or a biblegateway.com and start looking up the face of God, you will find it is all over the place. How have we as a church missed this concept? It's all over. But what will you see when you look in the eyes of God? Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, he was praying actually for you, for the church, for the people who would come after him. He says, I pray that you... Would have power to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to all the fullness of God. What are you going to see when you look in his eyes? Paul says, I pray that you will see what is there. How wide and full and long and high and deep is the love of Christ? There's another passage of Scripture that, that sums it up in three words. God is love. If you're going to look into the, the soul of God through the windows or the eye to the soul, what is the soul essence of God? What does Scripture say? God is love. Now you and I know that we mess up. You and I know that we do things wrong. The Bible calls it sin. You and I know that. But throughout Scripture, we see again and again, even Israel that was sent into captivity, God said, still, I love you. Still, I have plans for you, for your future and your hope. And when you seek me, I'm going to be here. Just turn to me. How do I know that God will look at you with love? Beyond all the scripture passages I've already mentioned, there's this thing, it's a really helpful thing, uh, uh, Strong's Concordance of the Bible, lists a, uh, a Hebrew word in all the places that it gets used. I decided to look up face of God. Face. Weeding out the times when it was talking about the face of the earth or the face of something else. If you look it up in Strong's, it's number, uh, Hebrew word, 6,440. It gets used a bunch of times. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. It's Hebrew. Come on. But hundreds of uses and every time without fail, when it talks about the face of God being turned toward you, it's an indicator of God's favor upon you and the only time it talks about the only time it talks about god not being favorable is when his face is turned away from you it's a consistent theme throughout all of scripture whenever this hebrew word gets used god's face towards you is favor god's face away from you is disfavor and i'm telling you look into the eyes of god his eyes are not in the back of his head And he says, when you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. I know when you seek God with all your heart, he will look upon you with favor. You know, it might not be favor on everything you're doing, but on you, it's favor. There's a, verse, there's a song I love, one of my favorite songs from one of my favorite groups. This Christian rock band from the 90s, it's not even together anymore. The song is called Charming One. And it talks about um, walking through life and all the temptations that come at us. It begins in the Garden of Eden, and it talks about how the apple was so charming that it got me. And then he talks about walking through the world and and these beautiful women and how they were charming and tempting to him. But in the final verse, it says, When all the other temptations come, so cleverly disguised, they'll find me clinging to your arms. He's talking about Jesus hanging on the cross. They'll find me clinging to your arms and gazing in the eyes that hold a passion that can never be undone. You are the charming one. There is something awesome about looking into the eyes of God. There is a passion there for you that can never be undone, no matter what you've done. What does it mean to look into the eyes of God? How do you seek God's face? Let me tell you the number one mistake we make. Practical application, what does it mean? What is he asking us to do? Number one mistake we make when we seek out God is we pray. By talking. Lots of talking, lots of talking, lots of talking, amen, bye. Bye. That's good, but incomplete. Because a true conversation is talking and listening. I remember Mary and Martha. One of them was busy about many things, many good things. One sat at his feet. If you're going to look And gaze into the eyes of a person long enough to know how they feel about you at a soul level, it's gonna take some time. You don't know how the girl at the drive thru feels about you by going through the drive thru. Yeah. (laughs) What you do is you take that girl out for a candlelit dinner and you sit there and you stare at each other for a while. You'll know how she feels about you. Okay. It's not so very different with God. When was the last time you sat and gazed into the eyes of God? We need to know how God feels about us. We know how this world feels about us, and it stinks. We need to know how God feels about us. At a heart level, at a soul level, especially when we're in those moments of desperation. So stop asking, petitioning, supplicating, begging, bargaining. It's when you listen. It occurred to me. There, I'm going to use Kyrie. Kyrie, my daughter, God bless her. I love this, this gal very much. And she's very talkative, yes? Yeah, yeah okay, good. Fair admission. So maybe we're sitting there and we're talking and you're talking and you tell me all these stories and all these things are going on and I say, Kyrie, look at me. You notice she didn't say a word. God is literally up there saying, look at me. Look at my face. Look at my eyes. I can't tell you how many times as a parent I have had to discipline one of my own children. I was the mean guy. I used the big daddy voice. I was the bad guy. And I was maybe a little harsher than I wanted to be. Okay, a lot harsher than I wanted to be. And when it was over and my child was like wrangling with their own hurt, some of it which I probably caused because I'm a fallible human being. But then I said to same child, look at me. I did that because I wanted him to see what was really here. It's not anger, not wrath. It's, I wanted, you know, even after everything you and I just went through, I still love you. God's doing the same thing. Look in my face. That may it seem strange to us to stop, close our eyes maybe or, or not, and just try to see God's face, just try to see His eyes. That may sound a little mystical, a little bit weird, a little foreign to our experience. But I'm going to assure you it's not. This has been a common theme in the church for a while, this idea that we might sit quietly, be still, and know that I am God. In fact, in 1918, a woman named Helen Horth Lemmel wrote a song about it. And if you've grown up in a Protestant church or ever attended a more traditional Protestant church for any significant amount of time at all, I bet you know this song. And I'll close with this song. "O oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior." and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. God, I am so grateful that you are who you are, that you are a God of love and of glory and of grace, that you are known to us as Abba, Father. You are known to us as Jesus, our Savior. You're known to us as one who sticks closer than a brother. You're known to us by living within us by your Holy Spirit. And yet, God, if I can just confess, I've spent far too little time, even though you are doing all of these things, even dying on a cross to know me, I've spent so little time trying to get to know you. God, help me overcome my own fears, my own hesitations, trepidations, distractions, let me just look into your face. Let me see what you see when you look at me. In church, by way of a slightly awkward transition, but here it is. We're about to sing one more song together. And then I want to encourage you to go out and find some time. Maybe it's this afternoon. Maybe it's tonight. Don't let this message get old. Find some time to look at his face. But we're going to sing just one more song here together. And during the course of that song, we are going to take an offering. It's part of the way that we worship and love God. And so I just want to add that to the prayer this morning. I just want to add, Lord, we desire to love you, serve you, and be used by you our hands, our talents, our words, and yeah, the gifts that you've given us financially. So Lord, we give back to you. Give back to the work of your church. Give back that others may have the opportunity to hear, to see, to know, to grasp how long and high and wide and deep is the love of Christ. Father God, take these gifts and bless them that many would be blessed, strengthened, reminded, renewed, and yes, Lord, even saved in the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.